Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. You want to go ahead and find your places where you normally sit. I'm sure it's got your name on it because um, nobody ever moves. I come up here Wednesday night and I can tell who's not here because you all sit in the exact same spot. All right, if you got your Bibles, uh, devices, you want to follow along. Romans chapter 16, verses 19 to 23. Uh, we got one more lesson after tonight. Uh, next week we'll finish up this incredible uh, letter of Romans. Tonight our title is The Crushing of Satan. Let's read our verses, verses 19 to 23. The Apostle Paul writes, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. And Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greets you. Just real quickly on that, Tertius, what, he says, I wrote this letter, so he's basically the scribe or the secretary. So Paul is, is basically dictating the letter, and Tertius is writing it. And of course, as we've said many times, he's writing from the city of Corinth. So when he talks about Erastus, the city treasurer, that's who he's talking about, is a man who is the treasurer for the city of, of Corinth. Now, like I said, we're almost done with this letter. We started this study... In August of 2020, so we are, uh, it, it's about a 22-month study that we've been in. That is, in fact, tonight is lesson number 86, okay? That's 15 and a half chapters. If you count it all up, and I did, so you don't have to, that is 425 verses that we've covered, right? And I've got something amazing. In all that time... Paul has never once mentioned the devil. Now let me let that sink in. Fifteen and a half chapters. We've been in it for almost two years. 425 verses. And Paul never one time has mentioned the devil. Now, we might say that he mentioned him indirectly back in chapter 8, verses 38 through 39, when Paul is talking about who can separate us from the love of Christ. He says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers. So, I'm, you know, obviously he's talking about angelic beings. He's talking about demonic beings. He's talking about Satan there very indirectly. But he's never once mentioned Satan directly. Now, I want you to think about that. 433 total verses in this letter. And he waits until number 427 to even mention Satan by name. By the way, I don't know about you, but that, I just find that fascinating. I find that absolutely fascinating. As much credit as people give to the devil, as much time as people sometimes focus on the devil, it's almost like to Paul in this letter, he is an afterthought. I mean, by the way, think about it. 
This is known as the greatest letter ever written. It, Paul talks about it's full of doctrine about sin and justification and sanctification. Go back to chapter 5. It's all about the origin of sin. He goes all the way back to Genesis and talks about Adam and, and how sin came into the world. Chapter 6, he talks about how we're set free from sin. Chapter 7, he talks about the divided man who, who wants to do what he, the right thing, but he ends up doing the wrong thing. You remember all that? And in all of that, he never once mentions Satan by name. It's only at the very end of this letter that Satan gets one mention. And the verdict is, he is completely doomed. Verse 20, Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, <laughs> what lesson should we take from that? That's what I want to know. Sometimes you can, you can learn things not just from what people say, but from what they don't say. So what, what lesson can we take from the fact that, that Paul... As I said, 433 verses, and he waits till the very end to even mention Satan. And when he does, he only mentions it in the sense of, of his impending doom. Now, I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to save it till the end. Okay, so I'm going to talk about that, but I want to save it till the end. I got a few things I want to cover first. The first thing I want to look at is how does this statement about Satan fit into Paul's uh, thought process? Let's go back to verse 19. And we covered this a little bit last week. Paul says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. Now, what Paul is saying about this church in Rome is they are an obedient people. They are obedient to the apostles' doctrine. They are obedient to Christ. And this brings him great joy. But he feels the need to warn them or caution them one more time. Let's read the whole verse. He says, Your obedience is known to all. That I rejoice over that. It brings me great joy. But... I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Now, Romans isn't the only place that Paul talks like this. If you go look, read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20, Paul says this, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. When it comes to evil, be like small little babies. But in your thinking be mature. Now, now, where does Paul get this kind of talk? Well, he gets it from Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said, said it like this, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as, servant, as serpents and be innocent as doves. By the way, that is the exact same word that Paul uses. It's the exact same word. It's the word akarios in the Greek. And we saw last week... This means, when it says innocent, it literally means to be unmixed or pure, as in a, a wine or a metal. You know how when they have metals and they want to get the impurities out of them, they heat them up, right? Well, he's saying that's what acarious means. It means pure. It means un, unmixed with corruption. So what Paul and Jesus are saying here is that we are to be a people so pure that even our thinking and our knowledge, it's not just our actions, it's not just what we do, but even how we think and the things we know about, we should limit evil as much as we possibly can. We should limit what goes into our head. It should be good, 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 not bad, bad, bad. 
That's the kind of people we are to be. So Paul says, yes, be wise, be smart, be mature in your thinking, but you don't do this by filling your head with the knowledge of evil. That's not how you're wise. You do it by filling it with the goodness of the Word of God. We learned that last week. How do you take a simple person, a naive person, a gullible person, Psalms 19.7 told us, The law of the Lord is perfect, making even the simple to be wise. So you want to see the world correctly? You, you want to understand things correctly? Fill, it with, fill your head, fill your, your thinking with the Word of God. That's how you do it. Not, just knowledge about evil in general doesn't make you any wiser in what is good. I heard a guy say it this way one time in a paraphrase. Paul says, I want, to see you to be, I want you to be an expert in good and not even beginners in evil. Be an expert in what is good and not even a novice, not even an infant when it comes to evil. Now, Paul says that in verse 19 and immediately in verse 20 he says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now what's the connection? Did Paul just say, you know what, I just said this, and let me just go say this thing that, that is completely separate. No, that's not the way. He, it's, it's a thought process. So what is it that connects these two things? I think Paul is saying this, don't be corrupted with evil, because evil's a dead end road. Don't be corrupted with evil, because evil is a losing proposition. It's a warning to you and I in this life not to be friendly with evil, because evil is going to lose. The Bible talks about that. You, you, you can't be friends with God and friends with the world. You've you got to choose one or the other. And what Paul wants us to see is that devil, that evil, that way is a dead-end road. He is going to be crushed. Don't, don't, don't give up at this point. Don't, don't give in at this point. Now, verse 20, in one sense, is a... A very broad, general promise to the church that Satan will soon be crushed under your feet. Now, it is, of course, a reference to this last great event in history. When Jesus comes back and he puts everything right, Satan is going to finally be defeated once and for all. Now, this, of course, and we could, we could go throughout the Bible and talk about Satan and spend a lot of time on him, but we're not going to do that because Paul didn't do it. But let's just suffice it to say, if you go all the way back to Genesis, when, 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 uh, when Satan tempted Eve and she gave in and then Adam sinned and the whole thing fell apart, God said this in Genesis 3.15. He says, He, talking about the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Most scholars consider that a prophecy that one day there's going to come a man, a messiah, and he is going to bruise the head of Satan, and Satan is going to bruise his heel. Now, we know that Jesus is that promised Messiah. John, 1 John 3, 8 says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. One of the reasons he came was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, here's the thing. Obviously, the, the works of the devil aren't completely destroyed. He is still active. He is still working today. He's not completely destroyed. So what does that mean, 1 John 3, 8, when it says Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil? How did he do that? Well, I want to give you three ways. 
The first thing, he did it in the past, he's doing it in the present, and he will do it in the future. Let's first look at the past. Colossians 2, 14 to 15 says this. He can't, and we ought to all, if you're a believer, you should rejoice over this. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says as a believer, he took your sins. He bore your sins on that tree. Your sins were being paid for in that moment 2,000 years ago when he died on that cross. And by nailing our sin, my sin, and your sin to the cross, he neutralized the only power Satan had against us. You need to understand that. The only real power Satan had was to condemn you because of your sin. But when Jesus nailed it to the cross, the only power Satan had was taken away. Now listen to you. He can rage against us. He can, he can come before the Father and say all kind of things about us, but he cannot condemn us. There is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. We cannot be condemned. So he can do some stuff, and he can try to tempt us, and he can try to throw us off track. But folks, he has no power over us. His, the only power he had was nailed to the cross. Listen to Romans eight thirty three and 34. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Say it with me. No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who is going to condemn us? Say it with me. No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Satan comes before the Father and says, look at her. Look at him. And, and Jesus says, she's one of mine. He's one of mine. I, I, I bore his sins. Yeah, he, at his, I, I've seen some bad ones, and yeah, I agree. He's made a lot of mistakes, but he's one of mine. I covered his sins on that tree just like I did hers. And, and, that's, and Satan has to walk away. He's, he's shamed. He has nothing to say. He's lost his power. That has happened in the past. But Jesus defeats Satan in the present. How does he do that? Listen to Ephesians 6, 12, and 13. Paul says, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, believer, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Listen, you and I, every single day on this earth, defeat Satan through Jesus Christ. Let me explain something to you. Every day you wake up and you're still believing you've defeated, you've defeated Satan. Every day I wake up and I'm still here. I'm still here. I have defeated Satan another day through the power of the Holy Spirit in my life and through Christ who gave himself for me. It, 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 we're fighting him every day. And every day that you wake up and you're still believing, you're still standing, and we win another victory. So he's being defeated daily uh, by the believers. Now, one day, it'll be all over. There's coming a day where he will decisively defeat Satan. Now, that, that, by the way, that victory on the cross was decisive. But the final blow is coming when Christ puts all things finally under his feet. By the way, this is as certain to happen 
as the fact that Jesus came and died and rose again. That just as that is a fact, this is a certain fact. It's going to happen. By the way, this is why Paul speaks of it just as if it already has happened. Ephesians 1.22 says, God put all things under his feet. He doesn't say God will put all things under his feet. He says he's already done it. It's a done deal. We're just waiting for that final day. So verse 20 is three things to us, really. It is a promise, it is a warning, and it is an encouragement. Listen, pick up the newspaper every day, go on the internet, read your news articles, open up social media, and it looks like evil has the upper hand, don't it? It looks like evil is winning. Romans uh, 16.20 says, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Don't, don't look. We don't, listen, we walk by what? Faith, not by sight. So what Paul's saying, don't, don't look at that. Don't worry about that. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. So it's a promise that this is going to happen. At the same time, it is a warning. Don't give up and change sides. Don't give up and change sides. There may come a time when it seems, like I said, that, that they've got all the advantages. The world is winning. And the pressure may be on us to, to, to switch sides. And Paul's saying, don't do it, man. Don't do it. It's the top of the ninth. It's the bottom of the ninth. It may look like you're eight runs behind, but the score has already been decided. What's going to happen has already been decided. Just hang on a little bit longer. Don't switch sides now. And it is an encouragement to stay vigilant. It's what Paul says, to, to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. I was thinking about, I, I, I've always liked sports, and you know, one of the most exciting things in sports is when some team is just down, when it just looks like there's no way they can win. And then they score 20 points in, you know, in 50 seconds. Or they, you know, score eight runs in the bottom of the ninth. And listen, don't look at the scoreboard. That's, that's what Paul's saying. Don't, don't look at the scoreboard. The result has already been decided. Satan is defeated. Don't switch sides. You're on the winning team. Just stick it out. And in the meantime, till that final victory, until that final bell rings... There will be grace for the battle. Romans 16, 20, let's read it again. Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But until then, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It arrives every day. For those of you that have been a believer for any period of time, you know this. There are ups and there are downs. And there are some really ups and there are some really downs. And it doesn't matter where you are, what day it is, what time of your life... Grace that you need always arrives in just the right amount. Always. He is always faithful to provide whatever it is that we need. Now, let me ask this question. This is a, a question that I ask. I think it's a question we all ask. How much longer? How much longer is this going to last? David said this in Psalm 74.10. He said, how long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? How long is your enemy going to revile your name? Y'all ever feel like that? You know, you just say, God, how long are you going to let this go on, man? 
how, you, how long you're going to let these people spit in your face? How long are you going to let these people blaspheme you? What, what are you waiting on? David asked that question. That Psalms was probably written 3,000 years ago. He asked the same question. How long are you going to let this go on? We ask the same questions. This is what Paul says soon. Soon. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, here's the problem. <laughs> he said that 2,000 years ago. Right? I mean, so is Paul, is Paul just a false prophet? Is Paul mistaken? How, how do you understand it when the Bible says that the day of salvation is near? How do you understand it when he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet? How do you, how do you reconcile that with the fact that 2,000 years have gone by? Well, here's the thing I love about the Bible. Anytime we have questions, the Bible always gives us answers. And God knew from the very beginning, that we would have this question, that, that David would have that question. And if he doesn't come back, our great-great-grandchildren will be asking this same question. So he went ahead and answered it for us. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Peter says this, Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. And they will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. So, now here's Peter, the Apostle Peter. And he said, I just want to remind you that people are going to come and they're going to make fun of what you're saying. That when you say Jesus is coming again, they're going to mock and they're going to make fun. It's been 2,000 years. We, we, nothing's changing. Everything's the same. Where's he at? They were doing that in Peter's day. And by the way, they'll do it in our day and they'll do it when we're long gone. Now, Peter, you got to remember, is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He knew. He's telling us there will be scoffers. So what is his answer to them? Let's keep reading verses 8 and 9. But don't forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise, as some people think. No, He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but He wants everyone to repent. Now, this is an incredible passage, and it tells us two very important things. Number one... God does not see time the way we do. Okay? God just does not see time the way we do. You got to understand, first of all, God is immortal. He has no beginning and He has no end. He's just always been. God does not age. God does not forget. He, he, he sees all of history. See, we, we experience time linearly, right? I mean, I, I can experience time all the way up to where I am today, but I don't know what's going to happen Two minutes from now. I think I'll still be here. But my heart could quit and I fall off. And y'all all rush up and try to revive me. And Are you with me? I don't, nobody knows. I don't know that. But you see, God doesn't see time that way. God is over here. And He sees it all. He sees all the way back to the beginning. And He sees all the way to the end. He knows where... It, I mean, 
He doesn't experience. By the way, God never gets bored. One of, the, one of the things that makes us bored is too much time with nothing, right? God never gets bored. He doesn't view time like we do. He doesn't experience time like we do, and we need to remember that. The second thing is his delay, Peter says, is for the sake of your loved ones, your family, your friends. See, what we got to understand is when he walks on the stage, it's over. I mean, when he, when he comes on the stage, the curtain is closes, it's done. If you're not a believer, there is no, there's no more chances. We need to understand that. See, we should understand that the delay of Christ's coming is an act of mercy. Because there's not a person here that doesn't have a family member that doesn't know him. There's not a person here that doesn't have friends that don't know him that doesn't have co-workers and schoolmates that don't know Him. So every day should be, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for one more day to convince my brother or my mother or my father or my sister or my cousin or my friend or my co-worker. Thank you, God, that you gave us one more day. That's all. It's an act of mercy. That's what Peter said. Don't, don't think he's just being slow. He's doing it for your sake. The second thing is, and the, and the sad thing about this is, that the irony of this and the tragic irony is this act of mercy. People look at it, the, act, the, the very fact of him being patient and merciful, and they look at it and blaspheme. They look at that and use it against him. Where's he at? Why is he not coming? All, all this stuff y'all believe is ridiculous. And he's doing it for them. By the way, that attitude one day will result in an unanswerable indictment. Second Peter 2.21 says this, It would be better if they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it and reject the command they were given to live a holy life. It would be better if they'd never heard the gospel. Because when you hear it, you're responsible for it. So the fact that they know it and they've heard it should just redouble our efforts to say time's running out. Time is running out. Now, by the way, God did not have to do what he just did. He didn't have to get, uh, he didn't have to have Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit write that beautiful answer that would relieve the doubts of people down throughout the centuries, but he did. But he did. He was that gracious and that merciful. So let's not lose heart. Let's not grow weary. Let's don't give up and switch sides. It's almost over. The delay is meant to lead to repentance, not unbelief. And by the way, those who reject His mercy and reject His grace and reject His patience, they, they are going to experience judgment just as surely as those on the earth in Noah's day did. But by the way, for those who believe, it's going to be glory and honor, and immortality. Those are the words of the Bible. For those who endure to the end, glory, and honor, and immortality. C.S. Lewis said this, God will invade, talking about the second coming. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. 
God is going to invade, all right, but what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left? For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. And it'll be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance, but it won't last forever. We must take it or leave it. Let me go back to my original question. I started out this lesson by pointing out to you that Paul has written this whole book and he doesn't even mention Satan by name. He waits until the last six or seven verses to finally mention Satan. And even then he does it, he's just saying, hey, he's doomed. He's soon going to be crushed under your feet. Now, the question I asked at the beginning was, what lesson should we take from that? What lesson should we take from that? Well, at the very least, I think that Paul's silence regarding Satan should caution us against making too much of the devil. Again, I mentioned, go back to chapter 5. Go read it tonight. It's all about sin, and he never mentions the devil. All about the origin of sin. Go to chapter 6. It's all about... Again, once again, sin and the life of the believer and, and our never mentions the devil. Chapter 7, the, 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 uh, the torn man, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things I do. And he never mentions Satan. At the very least, it should caution us against making too much of the devil. Now, I think this is exactly what Paul, let's read verse 19 again. I want you to be wise as to what is good. I want you to focus on this. Focus on that. Fill your life and your mind and your heart with this. Set your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Be wise as to what is good and righteous and pure and holy. And be like a baby when it comes to evil. Don't give it too much of your attention. Now, by the way... This does not mean that Satan is not real. It does not mean that Satan is insignificant. It does not mean that he is to be trifled with. Peter, 1 Peter 5, 8 says this, Be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So it, it, the, he's real. But you don't spend your life focusing on him. You don't spend your time and your attention on him. You're watchful, you're aware, you're alert. But you give yourself over to the Lord. You give yourself over to the word of God. I think what this means is that we deal with Satan more indirectly rather than in face-to-face -face combat. Okay. Now, by the way, there are certainly people out there who would disagree with me. Have you ever seen people who just seem to go around every day and they're looking for a fight with Satan. You ever, you ever notice that? You know, they're, you know, they're just always, it's devil this, devil this, devil this, devil this. 
Trust me, you, you listen, you can stand around me, get up with me in the morning, my wife will tell you, she goes to bed with me at night, she's with me all the time, and she never hears those words come out of my mouth. It's, I don't give him any credit whatsoever. I give him as little attention as I possibly can. But there are some who seem to go around looking for a devil under every chair. And they're continually about the business of rebuking him. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand. How many people in this room have ever said, I rebuke you, devil, in the name of Jesus? I won't ask you to raise your hand. See, here's the thing. Listen, I'm certainly, and I don't make myself out to be an expert in spiritual warfare. But can I tell you, when it comes to rebuking the devil, you cannot find that anywhere in this book. You won't find it anywhere in this book. In fact, the only person you find ever rebuking the devil is God himself. Zechariah 3.2 in the Old Testament says this, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. You see this in the Gospels when Jesus come, comes, the Son of God himself, the, the, the third member of the Trinity. In Mark 1.23-25, we talked about this uh, in our sermon a couple weeks ago. Uh, he's in the synagogue. There's a, uh, a man with an unclean spirit. And the demon cries out and says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. So you see God rebuking him. You see Jesus rebuking him. Now you go search your Bible to try to find a human being doing that. You won't find it. In fact, listen to this scripture. The Bible... <laughs> actually seems to teach that we shouldn't do that. Listen to Jude 1, 8 through 10. It says, Yet in like manner, these people, talking about false pot, uh, teachers and ungodly men, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glory, glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael... Now let's stop right there for a minute. Does everybody know who Michael is? There are... There are, of course, angels in heaven. And angels are incredible beings, right? They are smarter than we are. They're more powerful than we are. They're more glorious than we are. And that the head angel is a guy by the name of Michael. He's the archangel. He's the boss, if you will, of the, of the angels. And it came to a point in time where he was contending with the devil. So you got the, the, the archangel Michael and he's contending with with the devil. And watch what it says. Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. So even the archangel Michael would not rebuke Satan directly. He said, the Lord rebuke you. It goes on to say, but these people blaspheme things they do not understand. So, if we're not to go around rebuking Satan, then how do we fight him? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly. James 4, 7 says this, Submit yourselves therefore to God and resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, here's the question. What does the resistance look like? Do we go around and, and you know, I rebuke you and I rebuke you and I'm you know, anointing this and anointing that. Is, is that what Paul's going to tell us? Well, by the way, we just spent an entire chapter on doctrine. And he didn't mention Satan even once. 
not even once. I mean, I'm just, that just fascinates me until right at the very end. So, so obviously Satan is, is real. Obviously Satan has, has devices and schemes that he wants to use. How do we resist him? How do we fight him? Well, he doesn't tell us in Romans, but he tells us in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. This again is the Apostle Paul. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, we could just, we could just plant right here for a few weeks if we wanted to, right? First of all, notice that God has provided you armor. You are a soldier. You're going out into a fight, and this fight is against the enemy, and God has provided you everything you need in order to stand. Also notice what Satan uses. He uses schemes. He uses trickery. He uses deception. He's not just going to come and overpower you. He's going to try to deceive you. Okay? Watch what Paul says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So Paul tells us right off the bat, the devil's going to come against you. He's going to come against you with trickery and schemes and deceptions. And this is how you stand. You put on the armor of God. You rely on the things that I've given you. Now, what are those things? Well, let's keep reading. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is your armor. Number one, faith. That's, God has given you faith. Number two, your salvation and your righteousness. Notice in the armor, your salvation and... And your righteousness guards your heart and your mind. It's your breastplate and your helmet. Because you know why? I go all the way back to Romans 8. What did Paul say? Who can condemn me? Say it with me. No one. Because I have the righteousness of Christ. Who can, who can condemn me? Nobody. Because I am saved by the blood of Jesus. So when Satan comes and he sits on your shoulder and he starts telling you how sorry you are and how much of a fail you are and how much a loser you are, he's trying to get to your emotions, he's trying to get to your mind, and you protect that because you know you're saved, not of your own works, but of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you stand on that. Can you imagine having to go through this life thinking that you earn it and you know you're never good enough? And every time Satan comes and says, you're a loser, and you're like, yeah... I am a loser. I, I, can't, I can't do this. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans chapter 7? The things that I want to do, I can't do. The things that I don't want to do, those are the things I end up doing. And for everybody that's trying to earn it by works and be a good person, Satan's going to sit on your shoulder and tell you things that are absolutely true. You will never make it. You're not good enough. But for the Christian, it's completely different. My mind is protected. My heart is protected because my salvation doesn't lie in my own goodness, in my own works. It relies in what Jesus Christ has done for me. That changes everything. 
You just, just, yeah, you know, you're right, man, I'm not a good person, but thankfully I don't have to be because he lived the life I could never live. So we, we use our faith, we use our salvation and righteousness, and then we use this right here. He mentions it three times. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the belt of truth, and shoes uh, with the, uh, shod with the gospel of peace. Three times he mentions the Word of God. Let me tell you, it's a lot easier to go around rebuking Satan than it is to get in this Word and learn the Word and figure out what, where the promises are so that when Satan comes against you, you say, Oh, no, no. This is what the Bible said. Look at Jesus. Jesus is driven into the wilderness and Satan comes against him three different times. And not once did Satan say, did Jesus say, I rebuke you, get away from me. What did he do? The word says, the word says, the word says. It's both an, uh, an offensive weapon and it's a defensive weapon. It, it's not that hard, folks. It's really not. Spiritual warfare is not that hard. You've been given every single tool that you need. Your faith, your righteousness, and your salvation through Jesus Christ and the Word of God with every promise that is sitting there as a weapon to, rebuke, to, to repel Satan and resist Satan. And, it's, and, and James says, when you do that, guess what he does? He flees because he don't have anything. He has absolutely nothing. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. Uh, as we come to the end of this incredible book, and we've got one more final lesson. Um, Lord, I just pray, God, that we understand somehow, some way, what your word means. What a, what a weapon it is in our life. It's not just this nice thing that we listen to for a few minutes on Sunday morning and go home and think, well, I feel better. No, it, it's, it's given to us as a, as a weapon, God. It is there to resist the enemy. It, it's, it's there as a standard that we can take out when he comes against us with schemes and he comes against us with trickery and deception. We pull out the word and say, no, this is the truth right here. God, help us as a people love your word. Help us as a people to want more and more of your word and less and less of the news and less and less of entertainment and less of, of the evil and more and more of the good. God, it's so easy in this day to be drawn away, but God, help us. Help us to be a people that are focused on you and, and aware of the weapons that you've given us. We love you. We thank you for all that you do for us here at River of Life. Father, we pray for our service this Sunday. Uh, God, for anyone here that has unsaved loved ones, God, thank you. If we get up tomorrow, I want to thank you right now for one more chance. I thank you right now for one more chance. God, give us boldness. If we've got a father that's not saved, give us boldness to speak to him. A, a mother that's not saved, give us boldness to speak to him, Lord. God, give us courage to speak to our family, our co-workers, our friends. Because time is short, God. We don't know how much we have. God, but thank you. Thank you for this day. And as I said, if we're up tomorrow, thank you for one more day to carry the truth to a lost and dying world. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. You are dismissed. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. 
If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us at ROL Crawfordville for more information and directions.